This is the Sunday Catholic Word, a production of Catholic Answers, the only podcast to look at the Sunday Mass readings from an apologetics perspective. Hey everyone, welcome to the Sunday Catholic Word, a podcast where we reflect on the upcoming Sunday Mass readings and pick out the details that are relevant for explaining and defending our Catholic faith. I'm Carlo Brusort, staff apologist and speaker for Catholic Answers and the host for this podcast. This upcoming Sunday is the Feast of the Epiphany of the Lord. Consequently, the readings are selected to match this feast. In this episode, we're going to focus solely on some challenges that pertain to the gospel reading taken from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where Matthew narrates the story of the Magi and the star. Of the two challenges that we'll consider, one of them pertains to the star itself, and the other to the journey that the Magi make. Now, I have to say at the outset that the information that I'll be sharing with you is taken from several resources, most of which comes from a few resources published by my colleague and good friend, Jimmy Aiken. If you go to Catholic.com and search The Star of Bethlehem or Magi, then you'll find the relevant resources from Jimmy. For this episode, I'm going to skip over reading the passage and let you do that on your own. Let's take the challenge that's directed at the journey first. Here's the objection. A skeptic might challenge Matthew's narrative as to whether these men from the East really would have taken an international journey from the Medo-Persian Empire or Babylon to Jerusalem to greet a newborn king of the Jews. It doesn't seem reasonable to think that ancient peoples would have taken such a long journey as Matthew says they did. But in our response, the historical records suggest otherwise. Take, for example, the first century Magus named Tiridatus, who also was the Roman client king of Armenia. Multiple sources confirm that in AD 66, he journeyed with other magi for nine months to pay homage to Nero in Rome. And those multiple sources are as follows. Plenty the, Yel- Plenty the Elder in his Natural History, 36, Cassius Dio in his Roman History, 63, and Suetonius in his Lives of the Caesars, uh, in Nero, 13. So here's the argument. As Aiken points out, if the Magi traveled from their eastern homeland to the faraway land of Rome, well then surely they could have traveled to an eastern district like Judea, given that Judea is much closer than Rome. So much for the journey challenge. Now we come to the challenge from the star, and in particular, Matthew's description of it. Recall Matthew reports that the Magi say, quote, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star at its rising, or as other translations have it, in the east, there in verse 2. And then later, it says that, quote, the star which they had seen at, at its rising, or in the east, preceded them, came and stopped over the place where the child was, there in verse 9. The implication here, as many have interpreted it, seems to be that the store first led the Magi westward to Jerusalem from their eastern homeland and then to Bethlehem, which is just south of Jerusalem. The store then rested on top of the house where the child Jesus was staying, 
But for a skeptic, this is problematic because stars don't move like that. Therefore, it's concluded, this narrative must be either a legendary development or a theological embellishment of the Jesus story, something made up. Now, there are different ways that one might respond to the challenge. And what I'm going to explain here, again, is a summary of what is explained in greater detail by Jimmy Akin and a variety of resources that we have here at Catholic Answers. Someone might say that this is simply a legendary development and is not something that's part of the original source material that Matthew was working with. That's one way to try to get around this alleged problem. Now, there's one problem with this possible response is that it calls into question the historical trustworthiness of Matthew's gospel. Now, we don't have time here to get into the evidence for Matthew's historical reliability, but suffice to say that if Matthew wrote his gospel early, which some say was around AD 63, maybe even a little bit before that, then there would have been no time for such a legend to develop. He's writing within living memory of the family of Jesus and those who were with Jesus. The presence of such censorship excludes any legendary developments. Another problem here is that Matthew was a Jewish Christian, and his source material was Jewish as well. Jews, at least for the most part, <laughs> they disliked Eastern astrology, and they didn't have much to do with it. If any Jews did dabble in Eastern astrology, it would have been considered as being on the fringe. And this being the case, it's unlikely a legend would have developed within the Jewish community that could only be appreciated and understood if you're steeped in Eastern astrological beliefs, which again, most Jews were not. Here's a third problem. It's unlikely that Matthew would have included such a legend in his gospel that is directed primarily to a Jewish audience. Why would Matthew try and persuade a Jewish audience about Jesus with some legend that's intrinsically connected to Eastern astrology? That doesn't make sense. So much for that possible response, the legendary development and it not being a part of the source material. Another possible answer to the challenge might be this. Perhaps Matthew didn't naively adopt this as a legendary development. Maybe it's meant to be a theological embellishment, something that he, or at least his source material, made up, something that's more of a symbolic narrative as opposed to a historical narrative. Well, in response, Matthew's Jewish background creates the same problem for this response as it did for the previous one or this possible answer. It's unreasonable to think that Matthew would engage in such theological embellishments that can only be appreciated and understood if you're steeped in Eastern astrological beliefs, which, as I mentioned before, most of his Jewish audience probably was not steeped in such Eastern astrological beliefs. Now, here's another possible response. The answer to the challenge that most Christians will offer is that this is a supernatural, or you might say preternatural, phenomenon that's miraculous in nature. 
God, so it's said, by a special act of creation, created a miraculous light in the sky that moved through the sky to guide the Magi. And the Magi, given the predictions concerning heavenly luminaries and their belief system, interpreted the phenomenon as a sign of a newborn king. Now, from a Christian perspective, this is a perfectly reasonable answer. Given that God exists and that he's all-powerful, he can do such a thing, right? It's perfectly consistent with the Christian worldview. Such a miraculous effect would not entail, and keep it, this is important to keep in mind, such a miraculous effect would, effect would not entail a falsification of the laws of nature. In other words, it wouldn't falsify any scientific knowledge that we have about stars in order to quell the fears of our skeptic friend. Now, a skeptic might not accept this answer, but that's because of the more fundamental issue that he can't accept miracles. But within the Christian mental framework, within the Christian worldview, this possible response or answer to the challenge concerning the star is perfectly consistent. Now, there's another answer that also fits within a Christian framework, but is miraculous in a different sense. Rather than the light being some preternatural event that God miraculously brings about, this answer suggests that it's a natural celestial phenomenon that God wills to occur providentially in tandem with Jesus' birth. Let's start with Matthew's text itself. There's nothing in the text that demands we interpret it as a supernatural light that God moves about in the sky. Can a Christian provide that answer in response to the skeptic's challenge? Absolutely. But there's nothing in the text that would demand such an interpretation, thus giving way or allowing for this uh, celestial phenomenon interpretation that we're going to talk about here. So consider some of the details here. First, Matthew simply reports that they made their way to Jerusalem because they saw the star in the east. He never says that the star moved through the sky, leading them to Jerusalem. The Magi saw the celestial phenomenon and interpreted it as a sign of a newborn Jewish king. And this is consistent, as many have pointed out, with Babylonian astrological systems and would have been based on the various predictions within their belief system concerning celestial phenomenon and the destruction of their oppressive king. Since the Herodian dynasty was the current ruling family of Judea at the time, they naturally thought that such a new Jewish king would be a child born into that family. This being the case, they went to the palace of Herod the Great in Jerusalem. A second detail. Matthew records the Magi going straight to Jerusalem instead of Bethlehem. That, friends, gives us good reason to think that the star was in fact not moving through the sky as a guide. Why would the star lead them to Herod in Jerusalem and not straight to Bethlehem where the child was? The Magi didn't set out to Bethlehem until they heard about the prophecy from the Jewish experts. Now, somebody could say, well, God providentially ordered it that way, and that's fine. But if we're just sticking to the text itself, remember, there's nothing in the text that would demand the supernatural or preternatural interpretation. If we're just following the text itself, we see, hey, they're going straight to Jerusalem. They didn't go straight to Bethlehem. So seemingly, the star was not moving in the sky to lead them to Bethlehem. 
Now, someone might counter, well, Matthew does say in verse 9 that the star went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Doesn't that reveal that the star miraculously moved through the sky? Well, not necessarily. Although the phrase went before them is a good translation, since the Greek word parago means, among other things, precede, it need not be interpreted as anything other than the well-known phenomenon of distant astronomical objects, like the moon, apparently staying in the same place behind, beside, or before us as we travel. As the Magi went south to Bethlehem from Jerusalem, the distant astronomical object, the quote-unquote star, remained in the southern half of the sky. It, quote-unquote, went before them. Well, what about the second part of the statement? Some might say it came to rest over the place where the child was. The Greek verb for, quote-unquote, to rest, histemi, or histemi, came simply can simply mean to stand there, which fits with the Magi seeing from their perspective the star in the sky over the place where the child was as they approached. So there's nothing within Matthew's narrative that demands we interpret it as a miraculous light moving through the sky that guides the Magi. A Christian is perfectly free to believe that, but it's not necessary. A Christian is free to take this other route of, artic- of, of explaining the event by way of a celestial phenomenon. Now, the question becomes, well, what's the nature of the celestial phenomenon that the Magi saw and interpreted as a sign of a newborn Jewish king? Matthew says that it was a star, but is that what it was? Well, the term star meant a variety of different things at that time. For us, it means a collection of gases in which nuclear fusion is taking place and that generates light. For the ancients, however, it meant any light in the sky, the moon, planets, meteors, comets, and what we normally think of stars, whether that be fixed stars or constellations. Now, it's unlikely that it was fixed stars, stars that maintain their position relative to each other, like the Big Dipper, and go through their cycle once a year. If this is what the Magi saw and interpreted as a sign of a newborn Jewish king, well then, they would have been seeing the same sign each year, and thus thinking that a newborn Jewish king was born every year. But this is highly unlikely. It's also not likely that they saw a constellation, the sun or the moon, and all for the same reason, why it's unlikely they saw fixed stars. Constellations cycle every year, and as is evident from our experience, the sun and the moon, they do the same thing all the time. Well, what about a meteor? The problem here is that meteors are too transitory. Often, they only last for a second and then they're gone. So it's unlikely that they would have seen the meteor in the east, and then after traveling the long journey to Jerusalem, come to see the same meteor as they headed south to Bethlehem. Okay, well, what about the comet option? Maybe it was a comet. My colleague and good friend Jimmy Aiken gives two persuasive reasons why it's probably not a comet, although it's not impossible. One is that there's no record of a comet in the right year of Jesus' birth, which, as Jimmy and others argue persuasively, in my opinion, is 3 or 2 B.C., 
there are some comets that are recorded as occurring in 7 or 6 BC, which is the time that many think Jesus' birth took place, but there's evidence against this view. Another problem with the comet option that Jimmy points out is that comets were considered as bad omens rather than good ones. The Magi interpreted the celestial phenomenon as a good omen. Therefore, it's not likely that the sign was a comet. Well, what about the sign being a new star, which are sometimes found in some records of ancient astronomers? It's hard to see how it would have any significance for the Magi. Prior to its occurrence, the celestial phenomenon would not have been part of the Magi's astrological, astrological system. This being the case, they would have not been able to assign any meaning to such a star, like it being a sign of the birth of a newborn Jewish king. A new star would entail a new meaning. But for the Magi, they already had a meaning, a newborn Jewish king. Therefore, they already had the quote-unquote star in their astrological system. Now, the last option is that of an astrological conjunction of planets or a planet and a star. And this option, friends, seems to fit with what is known in Babylonian predictions concerning Jupiter and the star Regulus. Now, <laughs> I am not an expert on this stuff. So again, I can only give you a summary of the research done by others. The idea is this. There was a series of predictions in the Babylonian text referred to as Jupiter omens that historically came to pass. I'll list the relevant ones here. First, it was believed that if Jupiter reached a halting point in the morning and not some other time during the day, enemy kings would be destroyed. Second, it was believed by the Babylonians that if Jupiter passes the head of Venus, Akkad, the chief city of Mesopotamia, would be conquered with a strong weapon. There was also a prediction summarized by Dog Kilman in his book, The Star of Beth Bethlehem in Babylonian Astrology, that, quote, if Jupiter passes Regulus and gets ahead of it, and afterwards Regulus, which, had passed, which it had passed and got ahead of it, stays within its setting, someone will rise and kill the king and seize the throne, close quote. Such predictions would have been considered good news for the people of Babylon, and thus the Magi, because at the time, the Parthians were ruling them. They were being ruled by an enemy king. So such predictions would have been very much welcomed by these guys. So the question now is, well, did such a phenomenon occur in 3 or 2 BC, the time of Christ's birth? The answer? In fact, it did. In September of 3 BC, in the course of Jupiter encountering the regular star three times, it lined, it lined up with Regulus and Venus in such a way that it would have appeared as a single star in the sky. The details involved go far beyond this episode, and frankly beyond my expertise, but Rick Larson, an evangelical pastor, explains it all in his The Star of Bethlehem. And as Jimmy explains, Larson gets it right when it comes to identifying the phenomenon. He just interprets it in the wrong way. He interprets it through a Jewish lens rather than through a Babylonian lens. Now, the question is, well, why go to Jerusalem? 
right? Why would the Magi go to Jerusalem? Well, scholars point out that along with the predictions about the destruction of the enemy king of Akkad, there is mention of a king who will bring about that destruction as being from Amuru, which is the Babylonian word for the region west of Babylon. Now, this region would have included Israel, Lebanon, Jordan, and western Syria. And among these regions, Herod was the only powerful king. The west region of Babylon would not have included the Romans because there were no kings within the Roman Empire, only governors. Thus, the Magi go to visit who they know as the Jewish king in response to seeing the heavenly phenomenon of Jupiter, Venus, and Regulus lining up in conjunction with each other, appearing as a single star, which the Magi interpret as a sign that their enemy king is going to be destroyed by a king from Amuru. Now, it's likely that after the Magi meet with Herod and begin to make their way to Bethlehem, they did so early in the morning. Traveling at night over the mountains would have been too dangerous. Upon leaving in the early morning, Jupiter would have been in the southern sky. Moreover, it would have continued to be in front of them as they traveled from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. The road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem turns west. The stars rotate in such a way that Jupiter moves slowly to the west in the sky relative to someone standing still on Earth. So Jupiter moves westward slowly as the Magi travel down a westward curving road. Consequently, Jupiter would have remained in front of them the whole six miles to Bethlehem. And upon arriving at the house where the child is, Jupiter would have been seen overhead. Remember, one of, Ju one of the Jupiter omens was that when Jupiter is steady in the morning, the enemy king will be destroyed. This explains why the Magi, quote, were overjoyed at seeing the star, close quote, as Matthew records in verse 10. Again, a Christian doesn't have to accept this theory as an answer to the challenge considered in this episode, but it's a promising theory and that it makes sense of the text given the historical astronomical record and a plausible astrological system that makes sense of why the Magi would interpret the celestial phenomenon as a sign of a newborn Jewish king. The bottom line is that the skeptic's challenge of the quote-unquote moving star, it's not a persuasive argument to dismiss Matthew's narrative. Well, my friends, that does it for this episode of the Sunday Catholic Word. Thank you so much for subscribing to the podcast. Please be sure to tell your friends about it and invite them to subscribe as well. I hope you have a great feast of the Epiphany of the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Sunday Catholic Word. Find more great shows by visiting CatholicAnswersPodcasts.com or just search for Catholic Answers wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.